0: welcome everyone to pen pen pals we're starting some new coverage uh this episode we're going to go through the evangelion movies and the first one up is death and rebirth i'm alex hey i'm ben and our other host, Brian, has come down with a bad case of gender crisis. So we're actually going to have to let him go of the show. Thankfully, today we have a new guest with us. So please, everybody, welcome Blixa. Hey,
1: it's good to be here.
0: Thank you for being able to start, uh, come in on short, such short notice. I was wondering, so we asked all of our guests like uh, about their anime experience, and I was wondering yeah. if you had do, any Do like, you have any formative animes? <laughs>
1: All my uh, experience comes from listening to pen pen pals.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. oh, wow. Wait, wow. hold on. Are you a fan?
1: A long time listener.
0: <gasps> wow. So like, really exciting. And do, so you've listened to I assume that means you've listened to our coverage of Evangelion.
1: Yeah, I, I, I feel like I've sort of been with you along that this whole journey.
2: Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that means a lot. <laughs> so when is the first time you watched Evangelion?
1: Well, my experience is a lot like your former host, Brian. Okay. Uh, it's convenient. Renting VHS tapes from Tower Records. Nice. Um, three episodes per tape, if I remember right.
2: And, and do you remember, um, had, had this movie come out kind of shortly after the, the original series? Was this also something at Tower
0: Records?
1: I don't remember that. My recollection was that it was being shown at Otocon. Oh,
0: interesting.
1: Didn't get around to it. Only saw the, the movies recently.
0: So you have seen all of the Rebuild films, is that right?
1: That is correct.
0: And, and so this was something
2: I got confused about. Um, while I was watching this, I was you know looking up the Wikipedia. So this, um, I guess it has a couple names. It's Neon Genesis Evangelion Death and Rebirth. Um, it's also known as, uh, what is it, Neon Genesis Death Squared?
0: Yeah, with true in parentheses.
2: Yeah, and and I think I was reading that that's maybe like there have been a couple of re-edits of this particular film, and so I think this is maybe the second re-edit, which is where oh. that squared comes in, where there's kind of two movie- movies that are set, and then there's the rebuild series, which is like four different movies. Do I have that right now? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I looked up a bunch of facts about their first rebuild movie, <laughs> 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 which now aren't relevant so take everything i say with a grain of salt i might start spouting some facts from those movies
0: well you are ahead of the program (laughs)
2: well
1: this all contributes to like the sort of chaos of like the evangelion world right some of the angst is about has evangelion been treated like original star wars movies like the, the lucas treatment
2: right so, so one of the things I was reading, which, you know, might be good to discuss at some point, is that um, Anno, like his inspiration for it was actually the Gundam series. He was like, oh, can we somehow turn Evangelion into Gundam and, and kind of like do reboots that kind of go in new directions? Ah. But, but I think that came after this series that that's kind of like where his mind was going. Um, I, I think after the series, he did some live action directing, but kind of struggled with funding and and stuff like that. And then <laughs> maybe Evangelion was kind of like the cash cow he could go back to to kind of, you know, get paid and then do what he wanted to do
0: on the side or something like that. It has ensnared him. Oh no, Anna is trapped in the cycle of death and rebirth that is Evangelion. <laughs>
1: So we've all seen Death and Rebirth or Death True, whatever. Mm -hmm. So what's our feeling about this? Is it just a like recapped movie, like an abridged thing? Or is it its own entity? Does it do the Evangelion series a disservice? Or does it just prepare people for the uh, end of Evangelion movie?
0: i'm glad you asked Uh, i actually really enjoyed it so i watched it twice today one of them i was just kind of listening and then the second one i sat down and took notes and I thought to myself, I was like, what is the purpose of this thing? Beyond like, can I get someone to pay money for it? Like beyond that, storytelling or whatever, what possible motivations could artists, any artists, like most of it is just editing, but to put this thing together. And the only things I could think of were to, uh, as a recap, right, but even as a recap, like you choose out of hours and hours and hours of footage and audio, what you're gonna recap and how, and so the main thing I thought was like, what is juxtaposed with what? Like which scene follows what scene? Because it does feel a really chaotic. It's like bizarre. You start with like second impact. So you're like, oh, is it gonna be completely chronological? But that's not the case. Like you go know, second impact and then it's like, well, that's how we get to Masato. That was just like a character lead in and that's how we get to Asuka and that's how we get to Rey, and that, And like we're all coming back to shinji and we're like reminding everyone not only of the specifics but of the relationships that shinji has built in his time in this series
2: yeah i think it's kind of interesting because i think we were talking about you know in the show the experience of watching it on tv versus kind of how we can go back and watch it and pause the frame Mm -hmm. and and stuff like that and that you know if you had just watched the show on tv there was a lot of World building stuff and and kind of attention to detail with the characters and stuff that like, you know, maybe you just missed the first time around. I mean, I know I sure did. And I think that one thing that this movie does is by like, like you're saying, juxtaposing or changing the order of it. So you see, you know, maybe this one character storyline that had been spread out over you know, six different episodes across 20 episodes. Now you see the scenes back to back and it's a little bit easier to connect some of those dots. Mm -hmm. And and I I was trying to figure out, is this kind of underwhelming to me because it just is underwhelming or is Mm -hmm. it because like we already went back and talked through all of this stuff. So like the surprise of like learning some of the lore about, you know, the, the Lilins or whatever, or... You know, some of the things in these characters, I don't know, like it didn't feel like there was very much new.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I would go along with that. I thought some of the artistic choices were interesting. Uh, As Alex mentioned, uh, there's certain dialogue from late in the story that is overlaid over footage of early in the series. And it's kind of an interesting way of reintroducing us to these characters. If you do need a refresher before end of Evangelion. Because with the the audio overlay, it's kind of a more interesting insight into each of these characters. Mm. I couldn't help but to feel that if this was your first time getting into the story, you'd be completely lost.
2: Yeah, no, yeah, the, <laughs> I, it's just kind of like a standalone movie. I don't think it would work. I think just the jumping through the chronology, like it, it really does feel more kind of like a a clip show than.
0: Done like a narrative. It's almost like the last couple of episodes, but with a budget and editing time. Not like a huge budget because they reuse, like it's, I think it's exclusively reused footage. I mean, they use some of the prettiest footage, right? They use some really awesome shots from uh, angel fights. And like when it comes on screen, I'm like, oh, I remember this scene. I'm just going to enjoy this animation for a second. But it, it does have that, esoteric, reflective quality that Episodes 25 and 26 had, even to the point that our four pilots, you know, Shinji, then later Asuka, Rei, and Kaworu, they all join each other on stage and we get that same green exit sign for the theater that we had in those last episodes. So I felt like that was kind of the theater uh, uh, setting and that exit sign over and over as a recurring visual motif. Like I thought that that was maybe trying to subtly say, this is what the last two episodes might have been if we had more time with it. yeah, and, and I guess
2: that's my understanding is that these two movies are kind of like a redo of the end, but then mm-hmm. this one, the the first half or you know, some portion of the beginning is kind of recapping. whole series and Mm -hmm. then and then we kind of um at the end we're blowing out kind of episode 25 and then um next episode we'll get kind of a a new version of of 26 that deviates more from the original story is that is that kind of what happens
0: yeah exactly instead of having this emotional mind journey uh that presumably is what third impact is with uh or no, no no what's it called again Human instrumentality project. Yeah. Yeah. Instrumentality. Yeah. 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 Instead of it being this mind game, it is a concrete thing that leads up to that instead, like an action-packed, you know, storyline. And and I think we
2: talked a lot in, in the the first season of this where we covered Evangelion episode by episode, but there were kind of budgetary constraints. They ran out of money and, and time as they were animating it. And near the end, I, I don't know if it's the end of 24 but there's some episode where they have previews of things like in the next episode of evangelion that then we don't actually see so so we know that there was stuff going on there where maybe they couldn't fulfill their vision completely the first time and then i guess when this became such a financial success that kind of opened the door for them to go back and kind of revise this in this theatrical way, which I don't know. I, I can't think of another. Can you guys think of a show or, or something that does that? I mean, I guess there's successful shows that get a movie that, you know, they can kind of do something interesting with. But I don't know if I've ever heard about...
1: Like Twin Peaks?
2: Yeah, I guess they have a movie that's like a prequel. And then they had that third season. It must be 20, 30, 30 years after the fact? I mean, it probably is about 25 30. 25, it probably was. Yeah. It's
0: probably the same number of years in the real world, right? Because yeah. like, that was coming yeah, out in one the of 90s. Days. Yeah. I guess the other thing yeah, that
1: yeah. comes to mind is the Star Trek franchise, hmm. pre-J.J. Abrams, whether it's the original series or... Next Generation, they have these movies that come after to sort of tie up some loose ends.
0: I like some of the movies, especially I like uh, the original series movies more than I like the Next Generation movies generally, but uh, they they just seem... They feel kind of cash grabby, especially towards the end of them, like Insurrection and Nemesis. Mm -hmm. But this does not feel cash grabby. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Did this come out in theaters, like when it was Death and Rebirth the first time? Or did it come out just as like an OVA or something? Good question. Because, you know, we live in this age of... You know, we have it streaming. If we want to review the stuff, we can to uh, get ready for the movies, watching them or if if they were coming out. But if you didn't have access to that, but you had the ability to buy this one tape that gave you like a review of the series so that you could refresh it in your brain for uh, when you go into the movie. That's definitely useful for someone. Yeah, I I guess it did have a theatrical release. It says it started twenty to thirty theaters
2: and worked its way up to one hundred and fifty, and made one point one billion yen, which I think would be ten million or so, depending on what the conversion was then. And then I think it had like a a TV version, which was death true, and then this death true squared
0: is the kind of like VHS version. That's like a slight, slight re-edit. I see. I do love that it is a tight 70 minutes because you know, reviews can get kind of grading. If you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah I know what happens next. I know what happens next. I know what happens next. But I felt the pacing was actually pretty good in this thing. <laughs> Other than what's funny is like, you're trying to cram in all of this stuff and yet they still took the space for the awkward elevator scene yes and the very long shot where you just finish out the musical piece at the end where shinji is holding kawaru in uh O 01's fist before he decapitates him so like <laughs> in this thing that obviously doesn't need padding because you have all of the stuff to review if you want they kept in those awkward padding scenes <laughs> Uh, I didn't mind the, that they were left in there. I liked the the stillness and the silence because it is a bunch of dialogue and stuff lo- overlaid in each other. And Blixa, you mentioned this chaos of the whole thing. It was nice to have these little moments of like, you know, your head above water and being able to just sit there and look at an image and think about what just happened and what's coming up.
2: Yeah. I'd be curious to compare the Kawaru and the fist scene at the end. It felt even longer this time. I mean that shot like feels very long, but I would be curious if they did like extend that moment even more. There's there something I noticed this time around that I can't remember if it was in the original series or if we talked about it, but this kind of like almost shaky cam animation thing where you know the shot might be kind of still, but like it kind of bounces around as if someone's holding a camcorder. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I definitely noticed it more in this movie than, than I remember noticing it when we were watching Evangelion. But it's kind of interesting. And it's a little bit like when there's like a digitally inserted lens flare or something like that. This idea of like trying to make animation not look more like real life, but look more like a movie or, mm. or something. I think especially because Anno had interest in film outside of anime and, you know, maybe that leads to his inspiration or kind of thinking in terms of little details like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I have a question for the two of you. Yeah. So death and rebirth is a recap. And for the audience that may not be as familiar with Evangelion, uh, would one of the two of you be up for giving a quick recap?
2: You're <laughs> saying recap death and rebirth versus recap. Evangelion. Yeah, so
1: How would you recap? the movie that we just saw.
2: Well, so, so the first half or so felt like it was like a series of kind of going through different characters. So mm-hmm. I think we started off with like Misato and kind of like her childhood through who she became as an adult and, you know, including, I think you were commenting on this, Blixa, but but kind of it's interesting. You have some revelations about Misato's childhood Superimposed on her behavior as an adult um Mm. that kind of made it seem like you know this this is why she's like this or or something Mm. like that um and then i'm pretty sure right yeah after that we went to Mm oscar and we got the same thing with her we started off with her as a child um i don't remember where that section ended but did we kind of go through that with with all the different characters like their
0: chronological arc uh, we did Misato, Asuka, and Rei, I think. And those are the three, like, personalities that present themselves most clearly to Shinji in episodes 25 and 6.
2: Yeah, and then I guess we see Shinji when he's, like, like kind of where episode 1 started. That's where we go after that. hmm And then, yeah... I don't know. I'm, I, yeah, my my sense of the chronology gets yeah, a little so lost. Yeah, my, my <laughs> recollection
1: is it, then it just sort of takes us through the major beats of the story leading up to mm-hmm. the last two episodes. So we have Shinji mm-hmm. being recruited as the child soldier. He's got to get in the robot and fight the big bad monster, the angel. Mm-hmm. And then the next struggles are with teammates and then peers. And then I think it leads up to... A tense relationship with Gendo, Shinji's father, and then the tense relationship with Kaworu. It how the way I was experiencing it was like a series of like tense relationships like building up.
0: Yeah, that yeah, that's what I felt like the major thing it reminded me of was Shinji's connection to each of these individual people. Like it showed us important scenes for Shinji and oftentimes they were like important for Shinji but not as important for the other person. Like they mm-hmm. had the Asuka scene where, or the Shinji and Asuka scene where Asuka comes back to the wrong bed Mm -hmm. and they almost Mm -hmm. kiss. Oh man. Okay. So, and we talked about this when we covered that episode, but I actually fucking love that scene because it's silent. So like, it's not silent. They have the diegetic music going too fast. Mm -hmm. But as we've talked about a lot of times on this show, a moment like that will be played for like laughs in other shows, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And this, because of the lack of music, it's just awkward and awful. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's all of these moments between Shinji and other people that show what his relationship with them was. Like we had the one of the most important scenes with him is uh, and Gendo is uh, when they go to Yui Akari's grave and they made special note to put that entire scene in there because that's one of the defining moments with Gendo.
1: I guess what really stood out to me, like, reestablishing these characters is, like, as you mentioned, they do very specifically revisit these moments of sexual tension. Mm -hmm. Um, So Shinji seems to have, like, three significant females in his life and then has moments of sexual tension with all three of them. Mm -hmm. And in all three cases, like, a sexual relationship would not be a good thing for him. Like, so there's Misato who's too old for this 14-year-old mm-hmm. how's he
0: <laughs> yeah so an authority figure sure
1: um and then ray who's cloned from his
2: mother
0: yeah don't don't just Uh, get a partner because they remind you of your parent Well, yeah
2: and then i guess misato is sort of like a stand-in mom for him too right Mm -hmm. like yeah not just an authority figure but like she's taking care of him they live in the same house and
0: yeah and i never thought about this before but shinji purple is his color his eyes are usually depicted purple and Mm -hmm. misato's hair is purple so they're like color coordinated Mm -hmm. together Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, and then Asuka, gosh, it's such a toxic relationship. <laughs> like it just, it would be disastrous. Like they're also their coworkers. There's just so many other complications that would be hard for anybody, but a 14-year-old to like suss that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess this kind of gets to—I I love talking about like the criticisms
2: of a show like this. Mm. I, th- I think we're missing one sexual tension there. Oh. <gasps> Shizuki oh, Isato. Kawaru. Oh, yeah. yes. Okay. And that's yeah. actually
0: like it's depicted as the least complicated and like most positive, at least in Shinji's eyes. It just like excites him to be friends and be intimate and close with Kawaru. Yeah. The other ones are very complicated to Shinji.
1: Well, I guess that's still a complicated relationship if Kawaru's is <laughs> the final angel, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. So I I did check out what some of like the big name podcasters thought about this and uh, what some of the responses were on like Reddit and the anime news network forums and oh, a lot of negative criticism. So specifically about like the sexual content, which, you know, it's a different culture right now. And, you know, that's not a good excuse to say, well, it was a different time, but um, I do want to defend it. So just sitting down today and going through this, each moment of sexual tension seemed tense to me. It didn't seem like fun titillization, like fan service, like specifically starting out with Misato, you know, uh, she's drunk. Her clothes are swooping down too low. And she's even like, sort of kind of like, what, am I not good enough for you? You know, and then like the camera gives us like the big ass shot. And like, that was the first thing in my head was like, that's freaking hard for most people to sort out in their head, let alone a 14 year old you know, Mm -hmm. living at the end of the world. And like when that jumped out at me, a lot of things came into clearer focus for me. It's like, oh God, this is this kid's whole life. Like being in tense escalated, emotionally escalated situations, but not having the maturity to like see it very clearly. Like he might've, well, we know that Shinji fantasizes about sexual relationships with all these women, Mm -hmm. but he's too young to understand
0: why these things are a problem. Yes. Or like, or just not educated enough. Like, I could imagine a 14-year-old being, having those things explained to them, but like, you know, he's not getting anything from school. He's not getting anything from his father. He has no education beyond his idiot friends, Toji and Kensuke to like, give him advice on this stuff. And they're thinking the same stuff as his, and they're just more like vocal about it. They're like, man, it's so cool living with a babe like Misato. And you're like, you're missing the point. Right. Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting to think about because then that
2: same scene it's like, oh, you're living this babe with this babe Misato and you get to pilot that mech, right? And and piloting the mech that's not something to be envied, right? And that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe in that same way, yeah, living with that babe Misato or, you know, like right. sleeping in the same room as Asuka, the- these aren't what the fantasy would be.
0: Okay. exactly and kensuke and toji act as this audience stand in mm-hmm. this you know like they're really excited about the situation but then we get to see the reality like i mean obviously this was done in the series this is just a rehash but that was done really well yeah uh,
1: that's exactly but, where i was going with this you know mm-hmm. like i feel like those classmates really are the voice of your typical like shonen audience and i just thought it was interesting they took time to address that Again, like I am going to disagree with some of the big name anime critics and sort of defend this show. Like they didn't have any sympathy for Shinji having PTSD, basically, and like freezing mm-hmm. in a critical moment when he's supposed to kill something. And like, I just thought, like, if that's what you wanted, like there are dozens of other shonens you can watch that'll give that to you. It's like this mm-hmm. is a different story. I, I wouldn't call this a shonen. I'm going to double down on that. Yeah, this, I would say, Evangelion is not a shonen. Mm -hmm. Uh, sign-in, maybe, or whatever.
2: Uh, I think similar to FLCL and Darling in the Franks, you know, I I guess I would say I still think there is, like, titillation is a factor in this, right? And I think, you know, the way those characters are the audience stand in, I think we are, you know, supposed to get some kind of, like, vicarious... Titillation from like Shinji being in these scenes and kind of like imagining being in in those same places. Mm. I mean, I think the the place the story goes is that like you know it, it doesn't go in the like wish fulfillment direction. Mm-hmm. Like, there we go. But I do think you could get the same message across without being as kind of like graphic about it or whatever. But I think maybe then. The audience doesn't get the, like like the way they do it this way, the audience kind of gets to be in Shinji's shoes and feel it a little bit more the way Shinji feels it. But I think there is another way you could do it where, you know, you see that Shinji is seeing her cleavage without the camera showing us her cleavage. You know what I mean? Sure. I don't know. Well, maybe the
1: attempt there is to make us more sympathetic with Shinji because. Like we all experience mm. arousal and we usually can't really control just feeling arousal. Like we have to depend on our maturity with what, how we're going to respond to arousal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the ca- camera shows us and then we experience through Shinji sort of like, oh, wow. You know, because Gainax, they know how to draw a sexy figure.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see it as like a showing versus telling thing. Mm-hmm. Um it's interesting. Like I'd kind of imagine, you know, some of the critique would be, you know, sort of like a feminist critique of like, you know, you're you're making this show for for men and to titillate men. And I do think, you know, if you're not attracted to women or you know, not not kind of like someone who's going to identify with Shinji, then maybe that stuff feels more gratuitous. But I, but it, yeah, I think. You know, I think it's just kind of like you can't make something for everyone. And, mm-hmm. and you know, maybe this is sort of a show that like kind of its core or whatever, like that the audience they're targeting is like <laughs> a teenage boy or something like that or someone who once was a teenage boy.
0: Yeah. Like, I remember watching these episodes for the first time and being angry with Shinji, like thinking Shinji, you know pick yourself back up and like get the fuck out there and help someone and watching it as an adult i i do agree with (laughs) like some like ptsd and all that stuff like together it is a hard time to be dealing with life and someone asking you to get into a giant robot would not be a fun thing it's funny i like i don't know
2: maybe i was a sufferer of ptsd or something but i remember like watching this and like identifying very hard with shinji Mm. and just being like oh wow this is such a (laughs) i think i sort of remember us like actually like having this argument i don't know if that rings a bell it's very possible i remember you kind of having that attitude and just like (laughs) me being like god i would be terrified if someone asked me to do that
0: (laughs) i was like man i'd be the fucking coolest that'd be so fun doesn't matter if you fail because then you're just dead and you don't have to deal with the consequences (laughs) Dumbass, Alex. Okay, well, you've convinced me, Ben, (laughs) through our years of friendship.
1: Well, I mean, I I have one final thought on, like, the portrayed sexuality, and uh, I don't want to beat a dead horse. I know this has come up on the show before, like, just the difference Mm -hmm. between, you know, is what we're being shown in this part of the story, is it just descriptive or is it prescriptive? Are we supposed to, are some of these characters' behaviors supposed to be an example to us or, like, a cautionary tale? I mean, I've got my own thoughts on that. Yeah? Would would you share them with us? Okay. <laughs> uh I think it's like both. Um Okay. So Fence sitter. Sorry. I I mean I I'm gonna say I, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, kidding. I I, uh, I identify with Sinji. <laughs> yeah, good. And I would just speculate that most people, if they're honest with themselves, can sort of put themselves in his shoes. Shinji has these sexual attractions to these various uh, female characters. And uh, yes, it's confusing. You know, the arousal is very strong. It's real. Uh, And again, he, from what I can tell, didn't really have a lot of parental guidance. (laughs) So no one really to like talk about all the things you need to know about growing sexuality, consent, safety, honesty, uh, Mm -hmm. specifically honesty with yourself. And I know that I've had Uh, friends that I was attracted to. And that causes a problem because I care about my friends and I want want to be a good friend and do what's best for them. But when you're horny or lonely or both, which is the worst, sometimes what an attractive friend (laughs) is arousing can do for you, stimulating wise, uh, becomes Mm -hmm. more important than what you can do for your friend as being a good Mm -hmm. friend. Like it compromises your integrity. Mm. And I think we see very clearly, like he just doesn't handle it very well.
2: And and sorry, I, I mean, I I was on the Wikipedia part of the movie, but you know, I'm more familiar with with kind of the show. But I mean, like, do we do we see Shinji kind of like like we see his like the Asuka scene? I mean, I guess he's inching towards her. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, that's like an action. But does he ever really like act inappropriately on on any of this stuff?
0: Uh, I mean, he. F- for the the worst one is the um, I I I don't know maybe it's a tie because like that one he inches towards Asuka and you're like this is a bad idea she's not awake do not do this right but then there's the Ray scene where he goes to Ray's apartment to give her the ID and he puts on the glasses and then realizes she's in the room and is like oh my gosh. and then she's naked and like that one is it wasn't as active and so i don't know it feels like a tie to me because that one it i think is worse because like he sees her naked without her consent he falls on top of her there is like inappropriate closeness Yeah, but but it's all accidental right yes it is all played accidental absolutely it's played those tropes but unlike another show where again it would have you know, fun comic music in the background. Instead, it is no music in the background. And you're just like, this is so awkward. Please get out of this room. I really want this scene to
2: end.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So Something that was interesting, I, I didn't remember this from the series. It, it might be exactly the same, but what kind of jumped out at to me about it this time is like, Ray does not care at all that he has seen her naked. Like she acts in this like incredibly a sexual way that Mm -hmm. stood out to me this time and i didn't remember that
1: yeah so the reason why i think shinji is also partly a cautionary tale is because in all of these relationships it's characterized by unresolved tension um Mm. like he does make progress i guess all of them in some ways but there's a lot of things that just go unspoken like when i was talking about these things that are very important in your development about consent and safety like Honesty. Shinji doesn't really have honest relationships with anyone.
0: Mm. Yeah, he definitely doesn't have any like open up scenes with anybody, I don't think. There's like the conversations with Kaji are
2: maybe mm. close. And, and you know, it's, I guess Misato is kind of like his stand in mother, and mm-hmm. then Kaji is kind of his stand in father, which. <laughs> yeah, kind of an uncle <laughs> you know. figure. Yeah, and I mean, like, I guess you can see where he is not a good uh, role model in terms of <laughs> your sexuality. I, I guess it's just kind of, I don't, it doesn't feel, I mean, like, you couldn't have, like, a mature conversation with Asuka, for sure, right? Right. Like, she's not, <laughs> she, she's not capable of that. Like, Rey also not not capable. seems completely disinterested. Yeah, like, Misato, like, I don't know. Like, like <laughs> I feel like she would shut it down pretty fast and just like change the topic or something i maybe maybe besides or she's already drinking
1: yeah she has trauma and she's self-medicating with alcohol
2: and and then especially shinji being like a 14 year old like i don't think he has much much opportunity to do that maybe Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: so talking about trauma i thought like that is i think the one thing that ties all of our leads together like, we're we're acutely aware of their trauma. And each of them has a unique trauma, but there are, like, veins of similarity between them, right? Like, Shinji and Asuka lost their moms at similar ages, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Asuka had more memories of her mom. That's why, like... What's his? Th- it's harder. Shinji doesn't see that Rei looks like Yui because he doesn't have a good mental image of her anymore.
1: Yeah, they even mentioned that at the gravesite.
0: Yeah, that was awesome. I never thought about that before. So. My favorite or my best experience, I guess, watching it through was a couple of things that was like, oh, I never put that together before because Gendo at the gravesite says I burned all of her photos. I got rid of everything. There is no body in this grave. And I'm like, oh, so that no one can identify Ray. Like, that's a clever little thing that I never thought of. Uh, and there was one more, oh, it was Kaji. So Kaji is this spy. And the first thing he does in the series, uh, not chronologically, but, you know, when we meet him, is he ostensibly escorts Asuka to Japan. But really, he's delivering the embryonic atom to Gendo. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, he stole it from seal or saleh so they must have had it that's how they created kawaru because he is a ray type entity made from adam whereas ray is made from lilith mm-hmm. and by stealing the embryo though he's forced their hand They have to step up their plans now because they can't make any more kawarus. They have lost their access to these like primordial genetics that they're doing all these uh, experiments Mm -hmm. off of.
2: So seal seal is making the angels?
0: That's another thing I was wondering. I mean, we don't know where they come from. We assume they are pre-impact, that they are like children of Adam that are finally getting to Earth or finally mm. becoming aware, but like, they could totally be created from Adam by uh Sele. Mm. Anyways, all four of our, of our leads, Shinji, Masato, Asuka, and Ray, they all have trauma in their past. And that's what that's what brings them together thematically. Yeah,
2: it, it's interesting. I feel like I've seeing trauma more and more come up as like a thing in stories where they'll kind of like, flashback and show some incident to then like explain a character's behavior later on like i was just watching something where it's like it's it's, uh, life and beth the amy schumer show on hulu and it's like okay uh, as as a teenager someone makes one of her nipples right and so you get that a flashback after there's a sex scene where she doesn't want to take off her bra and i feel like i often see trauma as this like one-to-one like that or like Bojack Horseman, a show I really love, but there are some things with that where I feel like they want to make the characters like almost like mechanical, like give this explanation for everything. Like, yeah, this person's mm. a jerk, but they're a jerk because of like their childhood. Mm-hmm. And and I think one thing that this show does pretty well is we see their traumatic childhood, but then like it doesn't like neatly explain their behavior. It, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think it just kind of shows how complicated i think this stuff is in in real life
1: yeah right, right great observation none of us are just our trauma
2: yeah i don't know Yeah, sometimes i feel like the the tv show way of doing it is just
1: reductive i guess mm-hmm. yeah. maybe gynax should have done bojack horseman
2: Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> or should the bojack guy reboot evangelion
0: oh wow like a punchy depressing comedy version i like that too <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he's watched it.
2: No, I'm serious. I bet that. Are you saying you've seen influences of Evangelion
1: in BoJack Horseman?
2: Well, I think some of the, I think some of the trauma stuff. Okay. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it, I only know what I've watched, but I think this show was an early example of doing that. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I assume everyone in animation has watched Evangelion. <laughs> yeah, of course.
1: Never seen BoJack Horseman, but now I'm curious.
2: So, so I've, I've a this is a leading question that I have an answer for if nothing comes to mind. But I'm curious after watching FLCL and and Franks especially since they're some of the same creative people, you know I think we've talked about parallels that they had with Evangelion. Was there anything new that you noticed kind of rewatching this time with with those other shows fresh in your mind? Well, I have a new question, but that's about it. What's, uh, what's the new question? Yeah, sure.
1: Um, it's about the way instrumentality is supposed to be triggered. So Gendo has the embryonic atom implanted into his hand.
0: <laughs> it's a real quick thing.
1: Yeah. The idea was to merge with some form of Ray as the genetic engineered Lilith. Mm-hmm. And then... Sele or Seal had a similar plan with Kawaru being engineered from Adam material, presumably going to merge with like the proper, like Lilith that they had crucified. I gather from that that when Adam and Lilith merge, instrumentality begins. But does the way that this merger happens alter the way instrumentality is experienced? Like, is that what's being implied?
0: Yeah, they imply that kawaru getting to the embryonic atom would mm-hmm. be Sele's vision of instrumentality okay. but when he gets down into the thing it's not adam it's not the genetic material he was looking for so it won't work and so yeah i think that uh what's her name the genetic material of adam in gendo's hand somehow merging with ray or other that is the instrumentality that gendo envisions and my impression was it was kind of something like Gendo would be the the
2: ruler, kind mm. of his way versus I don't know if yeah Seal's in control somehow the other way or. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say there was one line though where there was something like like they're trying to force it with Kawaru. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get what they want like one way or the other. So it sounds like maybe Kawaru wasn't their ideal plan. That was like a backup plan after Gendo had stolen Adam mm. for whatever that's worth.
0: Yeah, like maybe they were still developing Kawaru when they had I mean, I don't know, it doesn't side-diegetically say I don't think that Se- Seal had Adam, but they talk about or they imply that Kawaru was grown from Adam, and so how would they have grown him if they didn't have access to it?
1: Gosh, well now my memory's failing me. Like Do we see that in the show? Do we see what is that physically initiates instrumentality? No, absolutely not. Okay. Okay. okay.
0: We go from episode 24 where they're like instrumentality is going to happen. There might be a shot of like Gendo and Ray walking away together somewhere, Mm -hmm. but that's it. And we just see people dying in darkness. Yeah.
1: Hmm. What was the post credit scene about the empty chair and the shadows of two people walking away from it?
0: Wait, there's a post credit scene. (laughs) Oh no! <laughs> uh, the credits are on top of it. Maybe all I remember is the headless angel body, the headless uh, statue. Oh yeah, that no, that is the credits. You're right. It's after the credits. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, the credits go sideways. What is this crazy language?
1: Well, that's how it works. With uh, okay,
0: post-credit scene. Here we go. Okay, I think the post-credit scene is the shadows of adult Gendo carrying kid Shinji away. I'll take your word for it. I can't pull it up. Anyway, so I don't know what that is, but I'm sure it leads into, we'll have to think of that when we do our next episode on the thing you just said, the end of Evangelion, the film. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, all right. That's um, our little teaser there.
0: Yeah, uh, I uh. did have a couple of things that I noticed uh, uh, or liked allegorically better because I had experienced Franks so, Kozo—he's part of the DNA of Dr. Franks because he plays this like he's the actual scientist. Like Geno's not really a scientist; he's a guy with a vision, and he had money, and he has drive, and he has will. Right? He's this like patriarch figure, whereas uh, Kozo was actually a geneticist, was actually working with Yui in the same way that Franks is uh, uh, portrayed. Um, And Frank's very much allegorically there. He become or he is the serpent a lot of the time. He's like handing this new information to the next generation to be like, hey, maybe you're not being told by God or Papa everything that you should be told. And so uh, retroactively now Kozo, I'm like, oh, he's also the serpent. In the garden and they had one scene that they included in here is Kozo talking to Yui under this beautiful tree. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about how they'll never have autumn again because the seasons are changing, which like it never being autumn again makes it sound like perpetual summer spring, which sounds like the Garden of Eden. And in this beautiful shot, he's like talking to her under this tree alone with uh, Shinji and he's advising her on her relationship with Gendo, who Gendo is, you know, allegorically muddy, but he's allegorically Adam and God kind of a little bit interchangeable. Um, And so Kozo is this cool serpent figure. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Uh, Oh, I I don't know if I don't remember what it is in the episode, but I really like the last shot Uh, Shinji pops Kawaru's head off with uh the Ava and then we get that lake and it's the statue that presumably it's supposed to be the statue that Kawaru was resting on when he first met Shinji mm-hmm. but the the neck where the head is split off from the statue is all bloody you're like oh that's meat hmm. and the uh statue itself uh looks like an Ava body i thought that was very cool because it looks a lot like Ava bodies we're going to see in the movie because mm. it has this very specific, uh, almost anorexic look to it. And, uh, you know, I'm playing this game Elden Ring, so now I have it on the brain. But in Elden Ring and Dark Souls 3, there are these gar- stone gargoyles that now that I looked at that picture, I was like, oh, they look almost identical. I wonder if hmm. that was their reference shot for these enemies.
2: And it is a statue of an angel, right? Yes. Then in retrospect, you're like, yeah, Cora was an angel there. You're like <laughs> <laughs> really uh, putting that all right there. But then still you're like, what?
0: Yeah. And like I said uh, at the beginning, my favorite thing about this was the shots that got juxtaposed that may not have been side by side actually during the series. Oh, and the last thing that I really, really enjoyed just because we were going back through it was uh, there's that scene where Asuka is like super depressed. She looks like she hasn't eaten and she is just laying in this bathtub, right? And then it shows you from her perspective, she's looking up or and she's looking at the sky with this um, faucet head, right? And for some reason this time when it was poking out like the faucet head looked like it was supposed to, the angle it was at and everything, it looked like it was supposed to resemble a sunflower. Mm. And I thought like, oh sunflowers are this symbol of like rebirth from nuclear catastrophe because sunflowers have this like i don't i don't know what it is in their physiology but sunflowers absorb like radiation at a greater, greater degree than lots of other plants do and so they are planted at like former nuclear missile sites and nuclear test sites and so i may just be in my head here but what i thought was like oh, there's this symbol of a sunflower, this thing that's supposed to be like making everything better, but it's not even a real sunflower. It's just an imitation, something that looks like it. And so it just really hit me the depressed state that Asuka was in, like looking up towards the sky and this thing that should be inspiring but all you see is the bombed out roof that you're Mm. under. And like, she's in this house that looks like it's been bombed out. So like the bomb imagery really hits me in that scene in a way that it didn't before. Uh, So are we to
1: infer that this place means something to her?
0: I don't know. Cause she spent time with the class rep. Mm -hmm. at some point and there's more evacuations so i wonder if we're supposed to infer that maybe that was the class rep's house Mm. Mm. and that was like the last place she felt safe because the class rep was a friendship that she had never had before in her life and so she went back there but her safety net there her whole like feeling of security was just a cold bath
2: Did, did we see the class rep in this movie
0: yes in one shot oh i'm sorry there was one more thing thank you for reminding me you know they tried to revisit not only that these characters are traumatized but the specific traumas shinji had to endure during the show and one of those was unwittingly killing toji in the Mm. 13th angel or something bardale and they showed the whole graphic scene of O-1 just tearing O-3 apart. And then right after that, they just gave you the shot of the class rep going, I wonder if Toji would eat leftovers mm. just to break mm. your heart again.
2: <laughs> That's right. They had their romance. Uh,
0: but they had this awesome, uh, when O-1 starts to destroy O-3, they put narration over of Kensuke saying, oh man, Toji's sister really let him have it. Like talking about Toji's sister laying into him, like kind of jokingly beating him up while he's getting like murdered. What a juxtaposition there. Jesus.
2: (laughs) Ah, That's dark. (laughs) Um, Well, I guess one thought I had after watching Frank's is kind of the, some of the similarities between Kawaru and and zero one. Um, They, they both have this plot near the end that revolves around this kind of like non-human sentient creature seeing the value in humanity and Mm. like deciding that human life is worth sparing and that that (laughs) that's like what Mm. is one of the reasons that that kind of like the world doesn't get destroyed Mm. I thought that was kind of interesting and then I was thinking about again a little bit when you're talking about you know why does Seal have one version of instrumentality and Gendo has another version? And it kind of reminded me of how, you know, Franks wanted to be the one to pair with, uh, yeah. zero zero. Um, whereas then the pairing ends up being, I've already forgot Shinji from Hero. Frank's name, <laughs> Hero, <laughs> Hero and Zero One, you know, and, and, you know, so I don't know if that's just, People being kind of self-centered and like wanting to be there at the final precipice of humanity or, you know, this, these kind of like final pivotal moments mm. or kind of what that
0: is. Zero two does have a little inside insider too. <laughs> Do you want to expand on that? Well, like I'm just thinking of all the D de- I, I experienced zero two as very much as a combination of Ray and Asuka. Mm-hmm but when she's not mad when uh zero two isn't like irate the like cool i know more than you demeanor that zero two has Mm -hmm. especially in like the first half of the show that's very kawaru and we i know we've talked about uh nine alpha being uh, aesthetically a very similar match and he even more has that haughty like oh i know what's going on and you don't wow
1: so I was just thinking of the terrace scene in Darling in the Franks when Zero Two first first got Shinji out to see the city. And she walked out on that thing that was over, you know, like really high up. And the wind is blowing. And the way she was talking is like, I can get you out
2: of here if you want. Yeah. Kawadi vibes. Yeah. Uh, I feel like when she's eating, though, with the honey, that's very Misato. You know, mm. so they just combine all all the characters into one.
0: Maybe that's what it was. Someone was like, "What if we take all four love interests? Pretty solid. <laughs> they did a good job." What what,
2: what do you see as the Ray? The Ray Zero two, like just the kind of social awkwardness. Or yeah, like, oh. the
0: different set of social rules. Like Asuka understands the social rules, but is either flouting them or not participating. But Ray, like. Especially in that one scene, the uh, Shinji goes to her apartment scene. Like, like you said, she's not upset that he's seen her naked, or or she can't express that she's upset about that. But like, she is not experiencing the situation the same way that we, the audience, or Shinji, is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say it goes even further than that. Like when Shinji sees Zero Two coming out of Strelizia for the first time, she's like the injured pilot, just oh, like Power yeah. See Ray. And then we also see zero two being depressed in the corridors from time to time. It's like, hmm, yeah, that's very Ray.
0: Yeah. And I thought just thematically, Ray pilots zero zero and Asuka pilots zero two. So if you combine their numbers, then they make zero two. <laughs> but speaking of mirrors and Kawaru, one of you said Kawaru mirrored something. Kawaru acts as this awesome mirror to all the main characters when he shows up because he is juxtaposed against Asuka because Asuka is having this crisis of confidence mm-hmm. and her sync rates are nothing. Like she cannot pilot and Kaworu comes in and he's able to lower and raise his sync rates at will. So it's this like mm. awful mirror that she's looking in. Uh, obviously there are the easy parallels with Ray because they're the same kind of creature. They even have like, they lock eyes for a very important shot right before the climax um, or during the climax. He acts as a mirror to Masato in that he provides a living space for the night for because it's Kawaru's apartment. They go back mm. to he provides this living space. He welcomes Shinji into the home, but he has a more honest relationship with Shinji than Masato does. Yes. And then Shinji himself hears someone who seems to know what they want. And I and I have no fucking clue. Like, I am pulled in so many different directions. And yet this person who comes up, Kawaru, he shows up and he just seems to know where he's going and what he's doing. And that is, like, attractive and unbearable at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the thing that he seems to want is Shinji at first, which is, like, a very intoxicating thing for someone to show up and be very confident and then zero in on you. And you're like, oh, well, what makes me so special? Do go on.
2: All right. Well, I feel like we've all been tiptoeing around the elephant in the room, uh, which is the the cello scenes. Yes. Yeah, and the, I mean it's the most dramatic addition to this movie, right? They're like the thing that this show was really missing was more cello music. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I did like that they put in. I think it's four pieces. Uh. Shinji does the very famous Bach piece that Yo-Yo Ma is famous for recording. Um, it was also used to great effect in Daredevil as the uh, theme piece for Kingpin. And then when Asuka and Ray come in, they do solo violin and viola pieces. And then Kawaru comes in and I think they do a full... Uh, that's when they do the quartet piece. And so I did think it was cool that they kind of arranged the different sections to correspond in some way in some, most of them, I think it just started uh, or it like it was the background for at least the first part of the segment, but it's, it would go to one of those string pieces and then that would lead us into each of the different sections, which I thought was really neat. Great. Great thing about classical music.
2: You don't have to license it <laughs> out of copyright. What
0: do you think is the intro to this? It's just that fucking Bach piece. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I thought it was good In terms of a recap show It felt a little more cinematic I just really liked what they did with the editing Mm-hmm
2: Here's a very minor lore question, but it came up a couple of times. The Gates of Guff? We ever talked about the Gates of Guff?
0: Okay, so the Gates of Guff, they leave it, I'm sure, purposefully ambiguous and esoteric in the show. They don't show you what those are. But the Gates of Guff are a Jewish thing. So in the Torah, um, the Gates of Guff are... Uh, there's a chamber, and the cha- I think it's the Chamber of Guth is where all unborn souls are mm. kept. And so when those gates open, it lets a soul out to be born into the world. And there's some prophecy about when that chamber is emptied, that signifies the end times in some way.
2: Mm. I think they referred to the Gates of Guth as the room that they were storing all of the, the Ray clones or something oh, oh that would really
0: track. that would track because they talk about it in the opening the 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 second impact
2: it, yeah no it came up to then when um Ritsuko was like destroying the the clones and so she said you know like these are just human-shaped objects or whatever. But she says something about the Gates of Gough. I mean, maybe she's saying they haven't received their souls from the Gates of Gough or something like that. I'm not sure, but...
0: Well, no, I I would believe you. I bet you're right. You know, they refer to it or something allegorically or esoterically. And so I I bet in both places, it's a signifier like this is a change to the end state. Mm -hmm. Like Ritsuko getting rid of the Ray clones is an escalation of the timeline, right? Because it's like... No more mucking about if Ray gets hurt again, that's it. That's the last Ray. And in the second impact, when they talk about the Gates of Guff opening, that would be like, there's no going back now. This thing is open uh, uh, or this thing is here. So we're going to have this like dramatic, you know, that's the lead up to the second impact. So I guess this Gates of Guff that she refers to would be leading up to this third impact.
1: Hmm.
2: I, I heard that that happened already. The Gates of Guff ran out. Oh yeah,
0: was it like mm-hmm. a year ago, two years ago? It what was. Do you think?
2: It was like right when the millennial generation stopped and the Gen <laughs> oh. Zers started being born. <laughs> uh, soulless, soulless yeah. monsters.
0: Absolutely, human shaped objects. They have uh, TikTok instead of souls. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I met a uh, kind of I guess my girlfriend's friend's kid who's like a fifteen year old nerd, and uh, he told me nerds listen to podcasts. I was like, oh, I bet. Like you must be like watching TikTok and YouTube and stuff, and he's like, no, like me and all my friends, all we do is listen to podcasts. Ooh, I love it. Yeah, there's a future for us. (laughs) Who knows?
0: We gotta get it. We gotta hook them when they're young.
2: So, not to be nitpicky,
1: uh, the guff, I don't think it comes from the Torah. That's just like the Old Testament. This is that would be either the Talmud or the Mishnah, probably the Talmud.
0: Okay, cool, cool. No, thank you. Okay, I I would rather be more specific. Blixa, did you want to do your after school special thing or whatever or save that for another time? Oh, no, let's do it. Oh, yeah, that's funny. That's what I thought you were gonna. I thought you were the a uh, most amazing leader. You were like, speaking of mirrors and stuff, we've been dancing around this issue. So <laughs> Blixa. <laughs> do you want to tell us how your journey started? How you came to this show?
1: So yes, I am Blixa. I used to be uh, the Pen Pen Pals host known as Brian, Uh, but for maybe a year now, I've been uh, asking tough questions about my sex and gender identity and sought out a gender-affirming counselor to help me answer some of the questions. I thought maybe maybe I was uh, genderqueer or non-binary or very fluid, Um, but it turns out I am a trans woman. Transfem, and very specifically, Transbian. You can Google that if you don't know what that means. Anyway, uh, a lot has changed since I came out. I came out in my private life in January of this year, uh, lost some old friends and gained some new ones, and I'm really happy to be a part of the pals family. Alex and Ben are great people, and uh, I'm glad they were open and, and welcoming of Blixa.
2: Yeah, I'm very really happy to to have you here.
0: Yeah, we hope that you will remain part of Pen Pen Pals until we <laughs> eventually get too big for our britches and we have to Beatles ourselves and like all do solo careers. Well, I'm no stranger to getting rid of britches.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> Okay, (laughs) so if we do have any listeners that are going to be with us for the long haul, I don't know if you'll hear too many uh, changes in Blixa's voice between Blixa and Brian. Uh, So I am on hormone replacement therapy now. I've been doing that since January. I don't know that that will change my voice, but uh, if all the insurance works out, then voice training is in my future as well as probably things like a tracheal shave.
2: What's a tracheal shave? I haven't heard of it's, that.
1: It's a way to augment, like feminize a person's voice. There's a documentary on Hulu called Transformer. It's about a, a well known bodybuilder, a former Marine, I think, that transitioned. And uh, they also do uh, the voice augmentation surgically.
2: Yeah, I've seen Um, the one that comes to mind is, you know, uh, uh, someone transitioning to a man, but doing kind of like, sort of time-lapse thing where they're taking hormone for a couple of years and they say the same sentence and you like jump ahead each month <laughs> or something. Those are, those are very interesting to, to watch. Yeah. There's a lot of
1: very compelling timeline videos on YouTube.
2: None come to mind
1: right now. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan of Jesse gender and Samantha Lux, uh, Matilda Hedberg, I think, but you know, If there's anyone out there that's asking questions or going on a similar journey, just be careful about relying too much on YouTubers, like very successful trans YouTubers, because that's a double-edged sword. They can provide a lot of great information, but they can also uh, set unrealistic expectations. Uh, They Mm -hmm. tend to be people that are very well resourced and have the luxury
0: of many years of transition under their belt. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of makeup, Mm. uh, it's subtle, but I tried to theme my makeup to look like zero one. Mm. I will, I have good colors, but now I have to figure out a way to make it more obvious. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to work on these. I'm going to try to start theming my makeup to, uh, the show we're doing. That would be fun. Awesome. You know, for those visual moments on the
2: podcast. (laughs) Yeah. If you subscribe to our Patreon, (laughs) but, uh. Youtubers not a trustworthy source. Come to come to Pen Pen pals. Mm -hmm. This this is this is all you need, guys. (laughs) Uh, So next up, like we also
1: will be uh, covering the end of Evangelion movie, which will in some ways complete this story, and then Mm -hmm. also the four rebuild movies.
0: So it'll be a six part series from us. Uh huh. Okay. All right. Pen. Pen pals.
2: Get Get in in the the (laughs) road! I fucked it up. (laughs) I don't know, that that one might be good. Are you
0: kidding? Yeah, we'll just use that. Oh (laughs) shit. (laughs) Welcome to the show, (laughs) Blixu. Wonderful. This is quite the rebirth.